your quality of work is their quality of life. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Ross Safari. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ross Safari Podcast. I want to start this episode by giving a quick shout out to all of my international listeners. I've been looking at some of my stats, and I see that I'm getting downloaded not just in the U.S., but in the United Kingdom, Canada, France, Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, Singapore, Japan, Russia, Malaysia, New Zealand, Brazil, Taiwan, the Philippines, Mexico, Norway, Sweden, and Ireland. It is crazy to me to think that people all around the globe are listening to this little podcast, and I thank you so much for the support. Speaking of support, whether foreign or domestic, you can support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash rossafari and by checking out my available merch at rossafari.redbubble.com. Also, don't forget to check out www.rossafari.com for all the juicy podcast gossip. Editor's note, nope, not that. And you can go to at Rossafari on Facebook and Instagram for my photos as I travel to all these amazing institutions. Today, the safari is coming to you from Chattanooga, Tennessee. You may remember a few weeks ago when I brought you three mini-interviews interviews? with keepers from the Chattanooga Zoo. At that time, I mentioned that I had spoken to two other keepers at the zoo whom I planned on interviewing, and this is one of those interviews. As I was wandering the zoo after my interviews there, I went to an incredible desert building. As I checked out the exhibits, I saw a keeper feeding roses to the rock hyraxes, something I did not know was a thing. When she exited the exhibit, I introduced myself to her and asked about the flowers. The keeper, Autumn Lindy, and I quickly struck up a conversation discussing the podcast, her hyraxes, and the other animals under her care, including the adorable fennec foxes I love so much. When I mentioned to Autumn that fennecs are one of the few species I love that I haven't gotten to meet in person yet, she immediately took me behind the scenes and introduced me to Sophie, the queen fennec fox of the Chattanooga Zoo. As I cuddled Sophie, don't worry, there will be pictures on Instagram and Facebook, Autumn told me that along with being adorable, Sophie was a very important animal for the zoo, and the story of why that is is in this episode. I wasn't able to interview Autumn that day, but we set up a Zoom call and reconnected, which is the interview I'm bringing you now. As we sat on Zoom, Autumn told me all about her phoenix, her sassy sand cat, her meerkats, and even sold me on the idea that naked mole rats are actually really cool animals. However, due to some internet audio issues, we had a really hard time hearing each other. The good news is that we were both recording our own side of the conversation, so you won't hear any audio issues in this episode, but I do feel like the conversation had less natural flow than some of my interviews where I'm able to ask a lot of follow-up questions. Well, get ready to learn all about a bunch of animals that aren't naked, aren't moles, and aren't rats with Autumn Lindy of the Chattanooga Zoo. Tell me who you are, where you work, and what you do there. 
Yeah, so I am. Uh, my name is Autumn Lindy. I'm the small mammal keeper at the Chattanooga Zoo. So I mostly work with small desert critters, meerkats, fennec foxes, sand cat, rock hyrax, naked mole rats, and then I have a small spotted Janet in our forest building. And then I also care for a random uh, Moroccan cockatoo. Uh, he doesn't really fit into my <laughs> genre, but I, I work with him anyways. So he's just, uh, he's an off exhibit bird and he just happens to fall under my care, even though he's not a small mammal. Um, he's my bird. <laughs> okay, cool. So, um, you mostly work in, uh, the, the desert building, right? Yes, that's right. Cool. Tell me, uh, the story of that building. Cause I know it's kind of an interesting one, how it came to be. Yeah. So it's all because of a little fennec fox named Sophie. Um, Sophie Fox was, uh, bought as a pet, um, from a gentleman, um, about 11 years ago now. And, uh, he unfortunately passed away about a year after having her. He, um, his family didn't really want to keep her as a pet, didn't really know what to do with her, um, wanted to donate her to the zoo. At the time, the zoo didn't have a deserts building, didn't have other foxes, uh, no one, uh, nowhere for her to go. Um, so luckily for us, uh, the family was uh, very generous and they donated all of the money to build the buildings that I work in. Um, so she's a very special fox. That's incredible. And she really is because uh, the way that we met is that uh, I talked to you about Fennec Foxes a little bit and you let me go back and and say hello and, and give her a little snuggle. Thank you for that. Um, that meant a lot to me. Oh, yeah, of course. Anytime I can share her. She's um, weird in that she likes human interaction. Most of our Fennecs, you know, kind of tolerate us, um, but she actually uh, really likes to be around people. So anytime I can show her off, it definitely uh, is good for her, too. That's awesome. Um, so one quick, really silly question, but uh, why don't they just call the zoo Chattazuga? I don't know. I have been asked that before, and that is a really good question. <laughs> but I'm, I'm so proud of that bad joke. Um, no, yeah. but seriously, um, getting getting back into the real real questions for a second. So when we first met, you were um, you had just come out of your rock hyrax exhibit, and you had given them some flowers. So I feel like most people listening might not even know what a rock hyrax is. And definitely might be uh, interested to hear that you feed them flowers. So tell me a little bit about your hyraxes and what exactly they are and why you were giving them flowers. Yeah, so our rock hyraxes are herbivores, so they eat lots of leafy greens and things. Um, and we um, we are lucky that we have a local florist, too, actually, that donate flowers to us. Um, so we found early on that our hyraxes love flowers, so it's a really easy way to bond with them, to train with them. Also just a yummy treat. Um, it's also something that we call browse. Um, we offer a lot of our animals like the giraffes, browse and things like that more often because they need that in their diet. Um, but we can offer it to the hyrax as sort of as enrichment or just several times a week, uh, something yummy for them to, to snack on. That's awesome. Do they have a favorite flavor of flour? I don't know if they do, but I notice that when I give them red roses, um, something reacts in their mouth and it creates a purple saliva. Um, and then it kind of gets all over the exhibit <laughs> after I feed them the red ones. I'm not sure what it's reacting with. Um, it looks kind of gruesome, but I, it's just from the flowers. Uh, but they seem, um, browse-wise, uh, they do seem to like sugar maple. Um, it seems their favorite uh, type of browse. Very cool. Very cool. And um, since we've been breaking up a lot, I'm not entirely sure. But did you, uh, at the beginning of that, give some kind of explanation of what a rock hyrax is? 
Yeah, they're uh, really cool rock hyraxes. They're mostly closely related to elephants and walruses, um, which doesn't make sense because they're a small little meatloaf-shaped animal. Um, but they do have the tusks in their skull. Uh, they're just a lot shorter than, uh, you know, elephants would be. Um, but yeah, they are um, kind of look like rodents, but they're not. Um, they're just kind of this small little elephant. Um, even their poop kind of smells like that, like hoof stocky elephant kind of poop. Um, but yeah, they're they're really fascinating little animals. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I find them incredibly awesome and adorable. So, um, tell me more about your fennec foxes and the the family that you have there. Yeah, so right now um, in my area, we have five. Um, so we have Sophie, our famous little lady, um, and she lives with her buddy Sahara. Uh, they're very bonded. Sahara loves her. She'll give her little back massages, um, hates when she's separated from her. Um, and then in our other exhibit, because we have two Fennec exhibits, uh, we have Chu, which is actually Sophie's son. Um, because Sophie was bought from a European breeder, her genetics were very high on the list uh, for the species survival plan, so they wanted to breed her. Um, so she had two offsprings, Pika and Chu. Uh, Pika went off and uh, had offspring. <laughs> yep. <laughs> other places. Um, we still have Chu. Um, and so he lives with our two uh, other ladies, Zadie and Zari. Um, and sort of they, uh, he's very protective over them. They're not a breeding group right now, um, but he is very protective of his girls um, and kind of hanging out in the, in our other exhibit there. That's awesome. So if they are not a breeding pair right now or a breeding group right now, I should say, um, what, what do you do to prevent uh, kits from happening? Yeah, so Zadie and Zari um, are not able to have um, any more pups, are not able to have pups. So they are actually our animal ambassador animals. Um, so their job was mainly to do programs and stuff. Uh, we unfortunately, uh, one of our foxes passed away, so we kind of had to play musical foxes. Um, so those were the two foxes that were most compatible to move up there. Um, we do hope that at some point that Chu uh, will get a girl, um, just because uh, he is Sophie's son, so he has good genetics. Um, but, you know, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but hopefully at some point um, we'll be able to get a female for him very cool and then did pika head off to another zoo for breeding or yeah i believe it was the st louis zoo if i remember correctly and if i also remember correctly i think she's had offspring so she's already carrying on sophie's lineage lineage that's awesome i love the area where the fennex are at the st louis zoo is really cool and that means that i definitely have some really adorable pictures of pika because yeah um, yeah they're just they're very photogenic at that zoo in particular so that's really cool i love i love finding out that these little animals that i see at one place came from another place i've been and just following some lineages is a lot of fun in the in the zoo world um, I'm curious, do you tend to keep yeah. up with uh, your animals when they go off to other places? Um, I do. This um, Here at the Chattanooga Zoo, I've only um, sent one animal off. It was a meerkat. Uh, we had a lot of meerkat drama, um, which we can totally get into if you want. Um, they were kind of, I started at the zoo last July, and for the first, like, six months of my job, it was meerkats. Um, so, uh, Sandy went, um, off to the Oakland zoo. Um, and we did keep up with her as she was uh, going, but at my last job, like when our red wolves would go places, I definitely would like start following them on social media just so I could see what they were up to. Cause, um, I was lucky enough to have three batches of red wolf pups while I was there. So, oh, um, wow. yeah. Wanted to see where they were and what they were up to. 
That's really cool. Um, uh, so yeah, you just gave me two great directions. I want to stay in the desert house for a minute, but let's make sure that we do talk about those red wolves then, because that uh, I find red wolves fascinating. Um, but so while we're, we're staying in the desert building for a minute, you also have, uh, as you said, meerkats, which was literally the next thing on my list to talk about. So nice transition there. Um, tell me about your meerkats. Yeah. So right now we have six meerkats. We have our mom flower, uh, our old man Tobago, and then we have four juveniles. Um, so, uh, Gotti, Makala, Oleander, and Dahlia. Um, we originally, we had seven meerkats, Merrill, but he passed away a couple months ago. He was the dad. We're pretty short to the four that we have. Um, but when I started the zoo, we had two, just Merrill and Tobago. Um, they had had an elderly female as she passed away so we could get, uh, breeding females in. Um, we were paired with two females from the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo. Um, they came in, they thought they'd be fine because they were sisters. Uh, about a week in, uh, they were very much not fine. Um, meerkats are matriarchal and they fight for dominance. So they turned on each other. Uh, neither was really dominant enough to like put the other in the place and neither was submissive enough to back down. Um, so, uh, we noticed quickly that we were going to have some issues. Um, we had some bad injuries, had to separate, which is not great to do. Um, but we had no other choice. Um, and then we worked with the SSP for multiple ways to try to reintroduce them. Uh, we caught all our meerkats up. We, uh, did what's called the circle of love. Um, so they kind of all got in crates for the night, could see each other, smell each other. We disinfected the exhibit, sprayed it with perfume and baby powder and all this stuff. Um, and we tried all these different things and it just didn't work um so ultimately had to ship sandy off um, but it was like months and months of trial and error and injuries and ultimately flower um had the tip of her tail amputated so if you saw her she was the one with the shorter tail um she also lost a toe on her back foot because her sister <laughs> was not very nice to her um so we, we did have to send her off um but as soon as we did um then flower got pregnant um so we had two two pups born in February, uh, right before the pandemic started, so people did get to see them at least. And then we had two more born in May, because uh, fun fact, um, meerkats have a post-patrician uh, cycle. So they go into estrus three to five days after they give birth. Um, nice. Great for the wild. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not great for yeah, us, necessarily. Okay. Yeah. And so <laughs> she got pregnant again. Uh, so we have uh, two more born in May. So. Wow, that's really cool. I love finding out all these little facts about animals. That's, yeah, I could see that being really challenging for y'all, though. Yeah, yeah. And so, unfortunately for us, Meryl passed away, um, but we did put flower on birth control just in case. Uh, Tobago's 11. He's an old man with some health problems, so um, he probably can't get her pregnant, but just in case, we don't want to outgrow our exhibit space. Um, so we'll just have six for now, um, which is plenty. Um, they are chaos. They are so active. They are so curious. I have to keep them busy at all times. So um, they're a lot of fun, um, but they definitely require a lot of, of effort to kind of keep them mentally stimulated. Well, and that's one thing that I noticed in general. Um, I know Fenix, I know meerkats, uh, you guys have sand cats, which we'll talk about in a minute, but these are all animals that require a lot of enrichment because they're intelligent, they're curious, and um, they need stuff to do. So tell me a little bit about what kind of enrichment activities you uh, have for these these animals that you take care of. Yeah, so we... Um 
provide enrichment pretty much every day um, for all of our animals. Uh, some obviously get them more, um, and especially like singly housed birds. Uh, the cockatoo that I care for, he needs a lot more because um, he doesn't get along with other birds. Um, but like the meerkats, yeah, like they uh, get insect scatter feedings every single day, so they have to get up and work for them. Um, but we also do activity things, so like dog slow feeders will put their food in. We have the, the pretty classic ball pit that you see with most meerkats that we put their food in so that they have to get those out. Um, and then just different scents and smells. We collect our alpaca wool. We collect feathers from other animals on grounds so that we'll give them. Um, and the meerkats being young pretty much play with everything. Um, feathers are exciting. Um, balls of any kind are exciting. Whereas like the sand cat, if I give him a ball, um, he's not going to do anything with it. Um, I have to be a little bit more creative with him. I love him. He's one of my favorite animals, but he, um, it takes a little bit more to spark his interest, um, than like the meerkats do. That makes sense. Cool. So speaking of, of your animals, we mentioned sand cats briefly and, um, unlike meerkats, which are not cats, sand cats are actual cats, correct? Yep. Yes, they are. They're little feisty cats. (laughs) I feel like to an average zoo guest, they probably just look like house cats. So um, what's the difference? What makes sand cats special and important? Yeah, so that's I get that a lot. Like, oh, he's smaller than my house cat. He's which he is. He's eight pounds. Um, he's smaller than my two cats at home. Um, but he definitely does not act like a domestic cat. Um, so I'm really lucky and fortunate that he I can go in with him and work with him. Uh, some places can't go in with their sand cats. Um, they're known to have like the Napoleon complex of cats. Um, <laughs> So, um, we're lucky. He's very hissy. Um, every time I walk in there, um, even if I'm going to offer him his food, he's going to hiss at me. I take it more as like of a greeting of like, Hey, I'm here versus like, Hey, I'm trying to be threatening. Um, he's never swatted at me. He's never tried to bite me or anything. Um, but he definitely will kind of, you know, be stalking me and things like that. Um, and I have no doubt that if I made him angry, he probably would let me know that. Um, and they've got very large fangs. If you've ever seen a sand cat, his his fangs are very large, not something you want to be on the other end of at all. Um, but he's also a really good boy. He's uh, hand injection trained. So this year I did my first hand injection for uh, physical. Um, so I trained him to uh, be able to accept that needle and get those anesthesia drugs and then go into his crate and go to sleep. So he could, you know, didn't have to get netted or anything stressful. So um, he's a really good boy, but he definitely... Um, will hiss at you and, you know, let you know, uh, if you're doing something he doesn't like. That's awesome. Um, I don't know if you've heard about this yet. I know it's something they're working on at Columbus right now, but, um, uh, there are some trainers now that are working to not only do hand injection training where, you know, you say touch or whatever, and then put the needle in, but actually to have the cat's lean into it and inject themselves on a, on a, um, stationary needle. And I just, I find that so fascinating. Um, do you think that would be something that you could ever mess with, with a a sand cat or an animal like that? Uh, potentially, um, it's, things are a little bit harder with him because it's free contact, which sounds silly because you're in with them. So you think it is easier, but it also means he can come at me at any time. Um, so I have to be really cautious of his head. Um, I know that was something at my last job we were thinking about maybe doing with our lemurs, um, because, um, they would lean in. Um, and certainly some of our bigger cats, like our jaguars and stuff, I'm sure that that's something that they could do. I'm sure Ramses is probably capable of that, um, at some point in time. But yeah, I have heard of places 
is doing that, which is like just another step in welfare. It's just like we just keep getting better and better, which is great. I think that's uh, one of the coolest things about zoos. And I think one of the things that a lot of the anti-zoo crowd doesn't know is just how much we're constantly working to better um, our training and better our, our uh, ability to make animals comfortable. And we already, you know, the zoo zoos already do such a great job, but constantly working to make it better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It uh, just in the time I've been in the field for about 10 years now, if you count my first internship. So um, even in that time, things have, you know, made such advancements, which is really cool to to see and be a part of in the field. That's awesome. So um, tell me, I'm curious. I know that um, you you work with a lot of really cute and cuddly animals, um, and uh, you also have some, like you said, some birds, and I, I believe you've got some herps in there that you take care of as well. Do you find that it's a different experience to take care of animals like that versus the cute and cuddlies, or you know, how do you feel about, say, uh, a reptile that you have to take care of versus a fennec fox that you get to cuddle every day? Yeah, so we actually have our own dedicated herp staff at the Chattanooga Zoo. So we have three keepers that take care of all of our reptiles at the zoo. So I don't get to take care of any of them. Some of them I'll like go handle for like when we have events and stuff. Like I'll get to take out some of our snakes and tortoises for that. Um, I actually miss them a little bit. Um, my last job was we were a smaller facility, so we did take care of everything. Um, and I had radiated tortoises that I loved. So like sometimes I'll sneak in and like give our guys some butt scratches uh, just because I kind of <laughs> miss that. So. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, um, it's, it's definitely fun. Um, the reptiles are fun just because I think you can work to change people's perspective on them. Um, I know even when I started, I did not like snakes, was not into it, didn't want to touch them, didn't want to be around them. And now I love them. Um, I think they're really cool. Um, so even my opinion has changed. And so working to change other people's is really great. Um, in my section, my sort of like icky animal is my naked mole rats, um, people come out, you know, I just hear, oh, they're so ugly all the time. And I'm like, you guys have no idea. Like, they're so cool. They don't get cancer. They don't feel pain. They're also not naked. They're not moles and they're not rats. So like, there's so much to learn about them. Um, and they interact with everything I give them. So like, just like the meerkats, I could give them pieces of paper and they'll make beds out of it. Hey, they'll make beds out of it. Since they'll come and like roll in it. And we have like a little exercise wheel that they'll, they'll, you know, spin in. So like, that's kind of mine. So I love doing keeper chats about them. So I hope we eventually post COVID, if that ever happens, can get back to doing keeper chats. Cause um, that's the time when I can really like talk about those guys and hopefully change some opinions on like, yes, they're not the most attractive, but they're really cool. Well, um, you know, we're on a podcast. Give me the keeper chat. Give me the quick version, but a little more than what you just did, but change some opinions about naked mole rats, because I guarantee that even zoo fans that are listening to this right now, there are many of them who are like, ew. So go ahead. Yeah. I mean, they're super cool. They're eusocial. So they're like bees. So there's one queen and then all of her workers. So I have a colony of nine that I work for, which in the wild, they'd be much larger than that. Um, but uh, you also, you can't introduce new mole rats to new mole rats or they'll kill each other. So scent is their biggest motivator and all of the colony smells the same. Um, so we even have to be very careful about what we give them in certain scents and where we put it. Um, we had one that was on medication and I had to like give him the meds and then wipe 
it off of his mouth because if the others thought he smelled weird, they would kill him, um, which we didn't want. Um, but then when the queen dies, um, so there are other um, other mole rats will actually turn into the females um, and then fight for dominance. Um, and then whoever wins actually elongates their spine to become physically larger um, to be <laughs> bigger. So, <laughs> uh, which is just like mind boggling. That's yeah, like you could you imagine that? Just like you're fighting with somebody and then you're like, oh, I'm the queen now. I'm just gonna stretch my body now. Like, what is that? <laughs> it makes no sense. But um it's what they do. Um and they're just science doesn't even know what their purpose is, because I've tried to look that up to like use that as a fact. So they're just like these little moras that just dig these huge tunnels in the wild. Um, they don't need to drink water. They get all of their hum- uh, water from the humidity of their environment, um, which is also a really weird thing. Um, they're also, their little teeth are so huge for this small little animal, um, but also being r- little rodents, they'll like grab a piece of sweet potato and hold it in their little hands and eat it. And it's the most adorable thing you've ever seen. Um, they also squeak when they're happy. Um, so we make what's called a mush for them. And it's like rodent block, which is formulated for rodents in zoo care. We'll crush it up and we'll mix it with banana. Uh, one day we were out of banana. So our nutritionist used applesauce. I put it in there and then I came back and I heard squeaking. And I was like, what? What is that noise? And I looked back and all my naked mole rats were eating it, making these cute little squeaking noises. Adorable. So they're really cute. Um, and yeah, they don't feel pain, um, and they don't, wild Makemores don't get cancer. They have found, um, some in captivity will, which I assume is probably just being, you know, contaminated with our chemicals and, you know, things that we do. Um, so they're just, they're studied, uh, for that because they don't feel pain. So they're also used in medical research. Um, so yeah, I just, I could probably talk about naked morats all day because <laughs> I just love them so much. Also, they're not rats. Um, they're actually more closely related to porcupines. Um, so, and they're not naked. They have little hairs on their bodies. Um, it's just really hard to see. Hey guys, I just wanted to drop in a quick interrupting John here. Um, I wanted to talk briefly about naked mole rats and the idea that they don't feel pain. Uh, while Autumn is correct that there are a lot of headlines that say that, it's a little more nuanced than that, and Zoe helped me understand it. And in this case, I think it's really interesting, so I wanted to share the details with y'all. Um, basically, there are a ton of headlines stating that naked mole rats don't feel pain in the pop science press, but these attention-grabbing headlines don't tell the whole story. The study that sparked these headlines actually found that naked mole rats do not show pain-related behaviors when exposed to acid and capsaicin, which is the chemical that makes spicy foods spicy. However, they have the same behavioral response to mechanical, such as a pinch, and thermal, heat, pain stimulus as mice. Uh, That study was Selective Inflammatory Pain Insensitivity in the African Naked Mole Rat, Park et al., from 2008. Uh, Going even further with this, it's kind of interesting. Birds also don't show pain behaviors when exposed to capsation, but naked mole rats are the only known vertebrates that don't with acid. Even more interestingly, naked mole rat afferent nociceptors, which are the sensory cells that respond to pain, do not respond to acid stimulus, but do respond to capsation. There just isn't a behavioral response, which is kind of weird. Basically, what that means is that the naked mole rats have a pain response, but we don't know if they actually feel the pain and aren't responding or what. 
Also, in general, if you expose an animal to heat after exposing them to acid or capsaicin, they tend to exhibit uh, increased sensitivity to the pain. However, naked mole rats do not. This is really interesting because it could lead to figuring out new ways to block pain pathways and could lead to new drugs and treatments as such. At the end of the day, it's important to remember that we cannot read animal minds, and pain is actually an experience, so we cannot directly measure whether an animal is feeling pain ever. We can do our best to read behavior and understand the physiology and make educated guesses based on that and our experiences as humans, but we never actually truly know exactly what an animal is experiencing. Okay, back to the interview. That's awesome. That that was so much stuff that I didn't know. Um, so thank you for that. Just for me, that literally, um, I, I like to pride myself on being fairly knowledgeable about most, you know, relatively uh, common zoo animals. But wow, that was that was a whole bunch of stuff that I just did not know. That's awesome. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned red wolves that you worked at at a previous institution. What institution was that? Um, so yeah, I was, uh, my first full-time keeping job was at the Museum of Life and Science in Durham, North Carolina. So mainly a science museum, you know, lots of science exhibits, STEM stuff. Um, but we also had live animals. Um, so I worked with our black bears, our red wolves and our ring-tailed and red rough lemurs before we, um, they passed away. And then our radiated tortoises, uh, mostly, but we also had like domestic hoofstock and then native North Carolina wildlife as well. Cool. And um, were the red wolves part of a reintroduction uh, thing for conservation, I assume? Yeah, their story is uh, probably a whole podcast, but um, they, um, yeah, so when I started, um, they they had about 110 in the wild. Um, we were doing a cross-fostering program, so um, pups born in human care could go uh, be fostered to wild moms to bolster the population. Um, that was typically successful when it happened. Um, it was a really successful program. Um, the numbers were good. Um and it was uh, doing pretty well. I mean, 100 individuals in the wild is still not great. Um, but for them who uh, they were extinct in the wild uh, in the 70s, it's better than that. Um, but only a population of red wolves are in the Alligator River Refuge in North Carolina. Um, now, unfortunately, the numbers are under 20. Um, there's no breeding pair right now that's producing offspring. Um, so it's a really dire story. There's a lot of politics involved, uh, with it. They're stopped cross fostering several years ago. So no, um, human care born wolves are going to the wild anymore. Um, and it, it's kind of a mess. There's lawsuits everywhere. Um, the government's being sued. The government's not really holding up to their end of the bargain. Um, they have to protect them under the Endangered Species Act, but they're really not doing their part. So, there's a lot going on, but it doesn't look great for our wild wolves. Um, there's about 250-ish um, in human care, um, so considerably more, but still less than probably 300 individuals total. So they're incredibly endangered. And uh, uh, yeah, they're just, they're so cool. There are purely American wolf. Um, and they're only on the East Coast. Um, so, you know, try to drum up pride for that, that like, these are, these are our wolves, guys. Like, these are on our side of the, you know, the country. Um, um, but um, it's hard. There's a lot of like, wolf being 
um, you know, predators is hard for reintroduction and things like that. So um, their story is, is long and sorted. And unfortunately, the wolf is the, the one that's suffering through all of our politics. Yeah, that's uh, that's the least surprising thing I've heard today. Um, but yeah, I know I just recently released an episode from the Good Zoo in West Virginia, and they are also breeding red wolves um, and doing as much hands-off work as possible in the hopes that they can start to do reintroduction again. So it's cool to know that, that zoos are working on that and... Um, you know, hopefully it'll work out. I have I've been to the um, the museum there and and gone through the the wild stuff, and it was uh, a very cool, very different place. I really enjoyed it in my in my time there. Um, where else have you worked? Yeah, so before that, I was a temporary keeper at the Akron Zoo. So I'm originally from up north, um, from Pennsylvania. So um, I worked uh, there as a temporary keeper and had a few other internships. Um, but yeah, I was there. I worked mainly with their ambassador animal collection um, and their Galapagos tortoises. Um, but a lot of birds, small mammals, uh, reptiles, a pretty good variation when I was there. Very cool. And um, how did you get into keeping in general? What was your, was this always a goal? And uh, what path did you follow to the career? It was not. Um, I originally was going to college to be a medical doctor. <laughs> um, I was about halfway through college um, working on my biology degree, um, was filling out a internship application for Hershey Medical School. Um, and it asked simply, why do you want to be a doctor? And I couldn't answer the question. <laughs> and I was like, well, uh-oh. Um, so my now husband, um, who's my boyfriend at the time, was like, well, you've always liked animals. You know, you've had pets growing up. You've always really enjoyed it. Why don't you go do that? And I was like, what do you mean, go do that? Like, what What do you mean? And he's like, I don't know. Like, work at a zoo. And I was like, I can do that? Uh, so started looking into that and how, um, that might work. Um, he was working in Philly at the time. He was older than me, so he was already graduated. Um, and so, uh, started looking at internships and so was lucky enough to get an internship there after my junior year of college. Um, and it was environmental education and animal behaviors, so not animal care, um, doing a lot of like conservation, talking to the public, uh, um, some animal observations with a little bit of animal presentation. Uh, but I still knew like walking into the zoo every day, like we had to walk past the hippo exhibit to get there. And like, it was just like, I was like, this is what I want to do for sure. Um, so tailored the rest of my academic career to as many animal courses as I could. And then, um, graduated and then started looking uh, at that time we had moved he had moved to Cleveland Ohio so um started looking around there and Akron uh is a great program but they have temp keepers so it's usually a six-month rotation I got extended to nine months um so I was there for nine months um uh which absolutely it's a great zoo and they're continually expanding even though they're a smaller place um they're doing great stuff um I actually overlapped with Jake who I know you interviewed um so nice. I knew Jake uh, before he was paid, <laughs> he was still just uh, <laughs> volunteering at the time. But yeah, um, and now we're like uh, two hours away from each other um, since he's up in Nashville. So, oh, that's so awesome! I love that so much. Yeah, Jake's such a cool, passionate guy, and seems to know everyone. Um, and actually, uh, I don't know if you know this, but um, I live right outside of Philly, so Philly is one of my local zoos, and and I go there a lot. So uh, that's kind of cool um, that you you started off your career there. Um, neat. And so here is, uh, to go off of your career for a second, um, 
And I'm just kind of, of curious. I know that you have a big heart for conservation and you say that you're not only an animal keeper, but a wildlife warrior on your uh, Instagram profile. Um, and I know that in particular, you are a big fan of uh, Joel, I believe it's pronounced Sartore. Um, tell me who that is and what he does and why you're such a fan, because it's very cool. Yeah, so he is a Nat Geo photographer that goes around um, taking pictures of endangered species just to capture them in case that they do go extinct. Um, at least we have a photo record of them. He takes them on either black or white backdrops. Um, so they're stunningly gorgeous photos. Um, I know it's a coffee table book I've had for a while. It's one of his giant books of pictures. Um, and then, yeah, he came to Chattanooga uh, last year. Um, so got to watch him talk and he's a such a passionate person, such a for zoos and for conservation work. Um, and it's a great, and he's very much like, uh, when you meet him, he can be a little bit abrasive because he's very much like, what are you doing? Like, I'm happy you're here, but like, what are you going to do today? Like to change it. And when I got to meet him and get my book signed, that's what he asked me. He was like, okay, what are you going to do? Like, tell me something right now. What are you going to do? And it's like a little taking it back, but it's like, I, I don't know. What am I going to do? Um, but it really does get you thinking. <laughs> and it's not enough just to, you know, like people or look like like ugh, like them on Instagram, you know. Uh, you really have to do stuff, even if it's, you know, buying a bamboo toothbrush or, you know, turning the lights off when you leave a room. Like, even little stuff like that can help. Um, so I really liked that he asked every single guest that um, just to get people thinking, um, which was awesome. But, yeah, it, I would highly recommend uh, anybody listen to him talk because it's very inspiring. Very cool. And that's called the um, Nat Geo photo arc, right? Yes, that's correct. Cool. Um, I, I love that. I, I was really excited when I saw that you uh, got to meet him. I'm, I'm a little jealous. <laughs> as, a, as an amateur photographer, I am blown away by his work. Um, so, okay, I have two more questions for you. One serious and one a little less so. Um, what is one thing you wish the general public knew about animal keepers and zoos in general? Ooh, um, probably about keepers is, um, that we're incredibly passionate people. Um, you know, a lot of people just think, oh, you're going in to play with animals all day. And that is not it. I wish that'd be great. Um, but you know, <laughs> it's a lot of really, really hard work. It's a lot of like my exhibits are sand and I have to haul that out with a wheelbarrow and haul it back in. And it's, you know, it's really hard work. Um, and sometimes that's your whole day and you barely get to say hi to your animals at all because you're busy cleaning. Um, we are lucky we have a commissary, but you also make diets at a lot of places. Um, and, um, I saw uh, a quote from somebody that said, uh, your quality of work is their quality of life. Um, which I thought was really profound um, because it's like, even if I'm having a bad day, like my animals, what the work I'm doing, that's their whole world. Um, so I can't really slack off. Um, I can't not give them enrichment or not do something for them or get them out for exercise time because I'm having a bad day. 
Um, you just can't do that. So, and we take our work home and we're involved in outside organizations. Um, I'm involved in AZAC, the American Association of Zookeepers. Um, I'm a vice chair of an organization there and another committee there. <laughs> and so, um, like I'm doing all of that outside of work that I don't get paid for, but they help conservation. So I want to be a part of that too. So, and we, you know, we eat, breathe and sleep, um, have dreams about the zoo. You know, did I lock that lock? Um, <laughs> you know, if our animals are sick, we're constantly thinking about that. So it's just, um, this is our whole life, um, is this job. And I think as far as zoos go, it's just, um, zoos have changed a lot. Um, I think a lot of people have a perception of zoos as what they were. Um, but, um, we are very conservation focused, animal welfare focused. There are so many little things that go into our jobs now and, and things that we have to do to make sure these animals live a good life. Um, and keepers love their animals and we would not be doing this if, um, if we thought the places that we were work weren't the best for them. Very cool. Uh, thank you for that. I love passion is one of my favorite words and one of my favorite things and, and, um, a constant theme in this podcast. So that's really awesome. Uh, and now something that I am passionate about, it's time for the Rasafari poop story. So go ahead and dole out your, your best gross story, uh, experience that you've had as a keeper. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this, having listened to the podcast before, um, <laughs> But yeah, so um, we had, I worked with black bears. Um, one of our black bears was having runny stool. So just like diarrhea, epic poop, not great. <laughs> uh, but we had four of them. We had acre exhibits. So we were having a hard time figuring out who it was. Um, and I was cleaning one day and, and our male bear had access to, you know, one of the other stalls that I was not in. And uh, I am cleaning and I hear like toot noises. And so I'm kind of like looking around. And I come out of the stall and I'm looking at him. I'm like, Gus, and his butt is backed up to uh, the bars, you know, facing the keeper aisle. And all of a sudden, here comes a stream of diarrhea <laughs> just full on out of him um, into the keeper aisle, you know, shoots across the keeper aisle, splatters on my feet. And I'm just <laughs> staring at it like, well, it was him. It was Gus. He's, he's the one out in the loose stool. Um, <laughs> So at least you were able to solve the mystery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Awesome. Um, are there any conservation organizations or anything like that that you'd like to give a shout out to or, or anyone? The floor is yours. Yeah. So right now I'm fortunate that none of the animals that I work for right now are endangered. Um, sandcats are vulnerable, but right now they're still doing okay. Um, so I'm still very passionate about red wolves, even though I don't work with them anymore. Um, so Red Wolf Coalition is a great place um, to look if you want to support. Um, not only do they um, support wild wolves um, and they actually have an education center in uh, Alligator River, um, but they also do grants and send keepers to conferences. Um, in my last job, they bought, uh, paid and bought a wolf crate for us for transport. And so they do a lot of great work. Um, and so they're a nonprofit, you know, fighting the good fight for red wolves. Um, so I kind of always like to plug them. Um, they also repost a lot of fun wolf content. So if you like wolves, they're a good place to follow um, just to get some really, really fun wolf content. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, definitely send me your iPhone audio so that I can hear what you said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And thanks for putting yeah. up with the technical issues. It, it happens sometimes, you know, that's, that's life in COVID. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd 
liked this episode, make sure you're subscribed to the Raw Safari podcast, and please consider taking the time to leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow Autumn Lindy on Instagram at ZKPRAutumn. And check out at Chattanooga Zoo to see all the awesome animals Autumn and her fellow keepers take care of. Also, don't forget to look into the Red Wolf Coalition. You're definitely going to be hearing more about the Red Wolf reintroduction program that is currently on hold in another upcoming episode. And if you haven't yet, go back and listen to the Good Zoo episode of this podcast for even more info about that incredible conservation effort. All right, credits, do your thing. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Raw Safari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Raw Safari, on the web at rawsafari.com, or email me directly at rawsafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.